Many wind instruments, including trumpet, trombone, and even berry sax, have what's called a spit valve, a little hatch that lets you dump out excess saliva. You gotta do it, since too much spit in your horn can give your tone a gargly sound. The important thing is to regularly clean the bandroom floor. Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about spit valves, leak lights, and so many other musical instrument fun facts that you maybe didn't even need to know. Strong Songs is and has always been a one-man operation. I research, write, record, and edit every single episode of this show all by myself. I'm very proud of that, but of course I wouldn't have the time to do all of it without the support of the show's wonderful patrons, and you can become one at patreon.com slash strongsongs. We've got a bunch of great listener questions to answer on this episode with topics ranging from ska horn sections to practicing while standing up to some fundamental differences between jazz and rock solos. Just as in life, we've got a lot to cover and a limited amount of time to do it, so let's pour some tea, put on our glasses, and get to work. time I've spent living and working online, the more I've come to appreciate the good and bad things about different types of online communication, an email versus a tweet versus an Instagram comment and so on. There's a lot of bad out there, a lot of platforms that seem designed to encourage conflict, context collapse, and general miscommunication. But among those, emailing with your podcast listeners has got to be one of the best ways to communicate with people. The human mind is simply not wired to deal with communication on the scale that modern technology allows. Even with a modestly big show like this one, like Strong Songs isn't huge or anything, but it's still big enough that it's kind of this weird disconnect between the numbers that I see of people who listen to the show and the actual reality of sitting here alone in a room talking into a microphone and then beaming the show out to thousands of people each week. But then I read through my listener mail and it all becomes kind of real in a certain way. Hey, here's a dad in Melbourne. He listens with his son. Here's a student in Norway. She listens while she studies. This guy's a lapsed guitarist in North Carolina. He's getting back into music. I try to reply to everybody who writes in and I can't keep all the emails straight over time. My brain is just not capable of that. But each individual email is really nice to read. And over time, they've given me this broad sense of Strong Songs listeners as this wildly diverse, thoughtful bunch, people of all ages, all cultural backgrounds from all over the world, who all just love music and love to listen to it and think about it. And that rules. So I guess this is a long way of saying thanks to everyone who's ever written in. And if you'd like to write in with a recommendation, Q&A, question or anything like that, write to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com and I will read it. All right, let's get into it. Steven writes, I have the weirdest earworm happening. Do you know the Madonna song, Open Your Heart? Somehow the opening 10 seconds or so of this show that my kids are newly obsessed with called Mira Royal Detective is putting that Madonna song in my head, even though I haven't heard the Madonna song in years or maybe even decades. Why is that? Well, let's see if we can get to the bottom of it. Let's listen to the opening of the theme song from Mira Royal Detective. Let's hear it for Mira Royal Detective. Mira, Mira, Mira. So I can immediately hear what Stephen is hearing, the reason that he's getting that Madonna song stuck in his head whenever he hears the theme song from Mirror Royal Detective. It's this one kind of melody that they do that's really similar to something that Madonna does a little bit later in Open Your Heart. It's the very first thing in the song, and then they do it again later. It's sort of the chorus of the song which they open with when they sing Let's Hear It for Mirror Royal Detective. Royal Detective. Let's hear it for Mirror Royal Detective. 
So the mirror theme is an F, it starts on F major, and that opening line is built out of the F major scale. Let's hear it for Mira. Just kind of very basic major scale thing in F. Then it all drops a whole step down to the flat seventh to an E flat major chord, does the same shape, basically, down a step in that key, Royal Detective, and it ends back on that F. So it's a very basic melody in F that then drops a whole step and repeats the same shape down a step before resolving back to F. Now let's get to this Madonna song that is inexplicably, or perhaps explicably, getting stuck in Steven's head. Open Your Heart is from Madonna's 1986 record True Blue. It is a banger. I actually considered making this my strong song pick for her, though I ultimately went with Like a Prayer. It's a killer jam, really great guitar parts. I love this sort of mid-late 80s Madonna stuff, just a lot of really great music happening. A little over halfway into the song, she goes into a different sort of a thing on the bridge. Does that sound familiar to anyone? So yeah, it's basically the same chord progression with the same melody. In fact, it's even in the same key. Both songs are in F. So starting on F major, open your heart, and then dropping a whole step to E flat, I'll make you love me. Same melody, same chords as, let's hear it for Mira, Royal Detective. Let's hear it for Mira, Royal Detective. Mira, 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 Mira. So that's why it's getting stuck in your head, even though you haven't heard the Madonna song in years. Same melody, same key, and it's also a really sticky melody. This whole era of Madonna is loaded with really sticky earworms. Her writing style at the time was all about these cool instrumental hooks that would weave in and out of her vocal melodies. I loved this style of pop music. This song is really catchy. Like, I read Steven's question and then immediately got it stuck in my head and had it, had it stuck in my head since now when I'm recording this. I'm guessing some of you out there will also get it stuck in your head, but that's fine because True Blue is a good album and you should go give it a listen especially if you haven't in a little while there's some pretty sweet stuff on there but anyway Stephen, that is the reason it's a pretty basic shape and a pretty logical melody for this chord progression and just one more way that madonna continues to echo out across the decades Eric writes in the song Fake Empire by The National, there are two piano parts played at the same time that appear to be in different timings. What's happening and why does it feel so unsettling? Well, let's give it a listen. This is Fake Empire by The National. So this is a classic four over three thing. The first thing you gotta hear is that we're in three four, so it's just one, two, three, one, two, three. Stay super late. So the song is in 3-4 time. The left hand is just moving through a simple 1-4-5 chord progression playing quarter notes in 3. Just 1-2-3-1-2-3. And then the right hand comes in and plays 4 notes in the same amount of space as the left hand is playing 3. 1-2-3-4-1-2-3-4. 
So it's what's called a four over three feel because the bass is three, the song is in three, four, the four notes are being superimposed over it. It's not quite as common as three over four. I feel like I've talked about three over four at various points on the show. Four over three is the same basic principle though. The right hand is just playing what I would, I think I'd call this a fourth tuplet or something like that. Um, I'm not sure what the official name is, but it's basically in between a quarter note and an eighth note in this three, four time signature. So it feels a little bit unnatural and it takes some getting used to for your ear. They lean into that sound, that superimposed sound throughout the song, and it's pretty cool. It's a good tool for making your song sound a little bit unsettled and sort of like it's pacing back and forth. It sounds a little bit off balance, which I think was the vibe that they were going for with this song. Kay writes, on a Q&A you mentioned 6-8 time being very energetic and forward-moving, which makes me think of the title music from Wind Waker, one of my favorite Zelda anthems. Now this isn't actually Kay's question, but this made me go listen to the theme from Wind Waker because I was like, is that in 6-8? I don't, I don't, I feel like maybe it isn't. And so I listened and it turns out that it isn't in 6-8 time, though I can understand why Kay remembers it as being in 6-8 time. This is just the menu music from The Legend of Zelda, Wind Waker. So actually this is a 9-8 time, which sounds more complicated than it is, because it's kind of in three. You can feel that here. One, two, three, one, two, three. But each beat has a triplet subdivision. So really it's one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three. And that's actually, that comes out to nine. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Anyway, I just thought that was kind of cool that that theme music is in 9-8 time because 9-8 sounds like it would be one of those super complicated time signatures. But if you're using the triplet and just kind of feeling it in three, it winds up not being complicated sounding at all. It just feels kind of like three. It's sort of similar to how 6-8 time can feel like 2-4 time. But anyway, this is not Kay's question. So let's get to Kay's question. My actual question, Kay writes, is about Breath of the Wild. When it came out, there was a fair bit of controversy about the music. Fans were expecting bigger, more epic tunes than previous titles, and instead we got a much more minimal and atmospheric soundtrack, sometimes even lapsing into complete silence. My question is, what do you think of Breath of the Wild's music? What were your first impressions, and have they changed at all? And what are you hoping for in Breath of the Wild 2? I personally love Breath of the Wild's music, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. So my very short answer is that I also love the music for Breath of the Wild, just like I love almost everything else about that game. I just think that it's incredible, and the music is a big part of that, because the music kind of is part and parcel with everything that makes that game special, and the whole approach that they took to it, which is an approach of space and freedom and openness. Like a lot of Nintendo games, the music is credited to a few different composers, three in particular, Yasuaki Iwata, Hajime Wakai, and Manaka Katauka. I think they all did an amazing job. In particular, it's really cool to see Katauka getting a credit there on a mainline Zelda game. She's composed music for past Zelda games, but it's just cool to see more female video game composers in general. So I've talked about this on various podcasts over the years. People will always ask me kind of what I think of the Breath of the Wild music. And yeah, I really like it. I like the minimalist approach. As Kay mentions, there's so much space in the music. A lot of the game is spent just walking around with no music playing at all. And that doesn't mean that the game is silent. It's actually the contrary. The lack of music allows the sound of the world, in particular the breeze, there's always some kind of breeze, but also just crickets chirping in the trees and the sound of the wind moving through the grass and through tree leaves, clinking of a wandering merchant's pack, the clop of distant horse hooves. 
you hear all of that, and that's kind of music too. I mean, Nintendo has always been very good at building its sound design and its little cues in musically with the sound design of the world and the musical score. There's such an organic soundscape in this game that's much more than just you know a world map theme that would play whenever you're walking in the overworld, like in a more old-fashioned Zelda game. So this game is all about immersing you in this lush, overgrown kingdom, and the way they do that with the music works really well. There are these piano chords and little piano motifs, just almost like a little bling, just like a sort of arpeggio or a couple of notes that'll just flit in and out, sort of fitting in organically with all of the other sounds of the world. It's also harmonically pretty different than past Zelda games. So Zelda has always kind of drawn from the work of Koji Kondo. He is the composer who wrote the original Zelda themes. You know, he wrote the music for the very first game, and there's always been this sort of um, Koji Kondo sound behind a lot of Zelda themes, even though they'll often go off in their own directions. His sound kind of defined it. I think that Breath of the Wild really consciously seems to borrow from Joe Hisaishi, who is the famed composer for Studio Ghibli. He composed the music for Spirited Away and Howl's Moving Castle and lots of other great scores. And he's all about those sort of uh, suspended chords, a lot of like minor 11ths, a lot of big open kind of modal sounds on the piano that they lean into quite a bit in this score. And it gives it that, that really clear kind of personality that comes across along with the sort of watercolor look and the just the general art style of this game, which is all just very Ghibli inspired, which, you know, Studio Ghibli is becoming more and more influential, but I'm here for it. That's fine. Those movies are freaking beautiful and their music is incredible. I mean, Hisaishi is one of the great composers, so fine, more people can borrow from him. I really like that uh, Breath of the Wild did it. And I think, you know, there I think there aren't actually that many games that managed to do what Breath of the Wild did musically. It kind of stands on its own. There's a few others. Uh, the original Red Dead Redemption actually was like a game that, that used sound design and music in a similarly kind of dynamic and creative way. But I really, really like the Breath of the Wild music. And one day I may do an episode of this show or maybe... Uh, an episode of my video game podcast, Triple Click, about Zelda music, because I have a... I mean, there's so much to talk about. There's so much good Zelda music. Maybe the greatest musical video game series of all time. But for now, yes, Kay, I, I'm with you. I really, really like the Breath of the Wild music. That game is super good, and I'm excited for Breath of the Wild too. and I'm excited to listen to the music in that game as well. Matt writes, do you know why French horn is the only instrument that I can think of, at least, that has valves that are operated by the left hand as opposed to the right? I'm hoping that there's a juicy story. So I don't think that there's a juicy story that I know of anyways. I'm not a French horn player, but I, th I thought I knew why this was, and then I looked it up to confirm it. Seems like people pretty much agree on this. So again, not a French horn expert. My understanding, though, is that like a lot of brass instruments, the French horn, which you hold and is kind of a coiled you know, a coil of brass. I talked a little bit about the French horn back on the Beach Boys episode from last year because there's a beautiful French horn featured on that recording of God Only Knows. Um, the French horn is this coil of brass that then ends in a bell that's like right near the mouthpiece because it's very long, but it's just coiled up in this sort of, uh, you know, circle. And you put your right fist or sort of hand into the bell of the instrument to hold it up 
while you play. And before there were valves on the instrument,、um, you could still control the pitch with your right hand. So it was actually kind of a right-handed instrument when you think about it. The left hand just kind of held it in place. The right hand would adjust, you know, to cover more or less of the bell, which then adjusts the pitch. So you could get a couple of different pitches out of it, depending on how you were playing. Since you're, you know, you're still kind of getting overtones, there's a kind of surprising amount of stuff you can get from an instrument like that with no valves. So then later. Instrument makers added the valves to give more flexibility and more available pitches to the players, and the instrument stayed, you know, constructed the same way. So you began to play the、uh, play the valves with your left hand, since your right hand was initially the one that was doing most of the work on the French horn. So that's why that is, and、um, it's not a super exciting story, but it is always cool how instruments develop over time. Particularly as someone who plays saxophone, or at least that was my first instrument, and saxophone was very much just invented by a guy like a hundred years ago, where so many instruments like The French horn, the trumpet, evolved over hundreds of years, and、um, it's always kind of interesting to look at at why that might be and why the instrument that exists today is the way that it is. So there's your answer. And you've been hearing behind me the wonderful French horn player Steve Park playing Strauss's Nocturno Opus Seven for horn. What a beautiful instrument the French horn is. Dave writes, "I'd like to learn how to sing harmony. I'm not a good singer, but I have decent pitch, so I'm not aiming to take gigs away from Michael McDonald. I'd just like to be able to sing along with my favorite recorded pop and rock tunes. Can you recommend any tips or resources for learning, like favorite online courses or YouTube teachers?" So I get the sense, just based on the emails, that I get that a lot of folks out there would like to be better singers, and I'm super here for that. I'm right there with you. I too would like to be a better singer. I actually think that everybody should have to take voice lessons as a kid, just because. The more I've studied the voice, and God, like undone years and years of bad habits, or at least tried to start undoing years and years of bad habits, the more I've come to appreciate just how important our voices are, and how easy it is to kind of misuse your voice your entire life, and just find, man, when I go out to the bar and talk to my friends, my voice gets really tired, and it seems like other people's don't. And voice technique is really all about alleviating that and teaching you how to use your voice, just. In everyday life, in speech, or when making a podcast, or public speaking, or giving a presentation at work, or talking on the phone to somebody, or just any time you're using your voice, the more you learn how to use it and to use it efficiently, the more expressive you can be, the more fun it can be to use your voice. And it's this thing that we use all the time for communication. It's one of the most important aspects of ourselves. Is like our voice. It's this super important thing, and we don't really spend any time learning how to use it. We just sort of assume, well, you know. You kind of naturally figure out how to talk, and then you're fine. I really think that more people should study their voice and really learn the mechanics of it because it's fascinating and very fun. But then again, maybe that's just me. Anyways, that's a little bit of a tangent. To Dave's question, yes, it's great that you're looking for somewhere to learn how to sing.、Um, there are some great online resources. I always say this, and I'll say it again, not to sound like a broken record, but there is no substitute for an in-person lesson, especially with something like the voice. Just because even if you only do a few private lessons, you don't have to sign up. For a weekly thing, forever, just a few lessons. It can be really, really useful to have somebody look at your specific voice and tell you, you know, what you're doing, what you need to adjust based on what is actually going on with your voice. Because everybody's voice is a little bit different. There are definitely broad concepts that apply to the voice in general, and you can, you know, get a lot out of somebody just telling you stuff in a YouTube video. Here's 
what to look for, here's what not to do. But there's no substitute for you singing something live, someone hearing you and watching you do that, and then just say, okay, here's what I'm seeing. You know, you're tensing here, you're kind of overcompensating there, you need to think about this, think of it this way, and like working with you through it specifically, personally, one-on-one. Okay, with that out of the way, there are definitely still online courses that are good. There's a whole lot of them, and I'm sure a lot of them are good just because there's a lot of great singers and a lot of great teachers in the world. One that I've had some success with that I like is made by a guy named Ken Tamplin. He sells this huge package of online lessons and exercises like videos and MP3s that you download. Um, I haven't done all of his lessons. It's like way too much stuff. It's a whole ton of stuff that I bought when I bought his package. But I do like his exercises where he just runs you through scales and vowel sounds. They're just, they're good. They, you know, they're, they're pretty straightforward, but they're organized in a way that I find helpful. I've sort of rearranged them into my own little, you know, workouts that I do each day. The thing about Ken is he's got a YouTube channel. You can go watch him sing and work with students as well. There's a lot of free stuff of his actually that you can check out. He's an incredible singer. Like he has a completely ridiculous voice and it's fun to watch him do his thing. He's like recorded tons of covers on YouTube. And I mean, it's his vocal technique is just unstoppable. It's crazy. And that's really cool because you can trust that this guy knows what he's doing. He's clearly got a very healthy voice that he's maintained and trained into this incredible state. There are times where his demonstrations can be a little bit frustrating because, you know, he'll demonstrate something that I'm really struggling with and it'll just sound totally nails, just perfect. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Like, but you're like an amazing singer. So how exactly did you do that? And that actually kind of brings me back to the in-person thing where if we were doing a one-on-one lesson, I would say that. I'd be like, okay, well, that's great. Can we slow down on this for a second? And, you know, and we would. And he'd sort of demonstrate what he's doing and I'd try to do it. And he'd sort of help me get closer to how he's doing it. And that's, again, why the one-on-one thing can be useful and why I really just use his exercises and lessons as a sort of a buttress for my in-person studies with my own private voice teacher. But I do like Ken's exercises. His overall approach seems solid. Go check out his YouTube channel. That's one place to start um, since I know It's kind of overwhelming to just say, there's a lot of good ones. I don't know. You know, I I like his stuff. And I should say, this isn't an official endorsement or anything. I don't know, Ken. Um, I just, I really do do his lessons and I think they're pretty good. So they're worth checking out. Um, I hope that that's helpful and that that's a, a good place to start. Duncan writes, there's something bugging me in The One by the Lemon Twigs. Starting anytime they sing, you move on to another person. There's some sort of guitar bass riff that feels like it's got something extra to it. Maybe it's that I've got a pair of decent monitoring headphones after listening on earphones for months, but it sounds like it could be contrary motion to me, or maybe they're just rocking. It's pretty much in the middle of the mix. What is going on in this song? All right, well, let's give it a listen. This is the Lemon Twigs, The One. And here's the section Duncan is asking about. So first of all, this is a great song. This is a really good band that I'd never heard of. The Lemon Twigs. This is from their album Songs for the General Public from 2020. Just really great stuff. Great songwriting. Really creative. And there's a lot of cool stuff going on in the instrumentation and the orchestration of this tune. So the section in question is when they sing, You move on to another person. No one can give you what you want. 
they're kind of up high there. You know, he's obviously belting it out, and I'm not. Um, we're in the key of D flat, kind of starts up on an F. The chord progression here is a two, five, one, four. So it starts on the two. It's a nice little two, five, one, which is a nice chord progression. The melody is pretty straightforward. It starts on an F. It just climbs up. And then back down. So that's not that exciting on its own, but as Duncan notes, it does get exciting when you factor in the riff being played by the bass and the guitar. So listen to the recording and listen to that focus on the bass and the guitar and what they're playing. Very cool. So that counter melody is everything in this song. Very cool. It's got some nice chromaticism. I think I'm actually hearing strings in there too. So it's like the bass, the guitar, and some strings like a cello or something. I just am hearing a sort of a stretchy string texture as well. Um, and yeah, that that counter melody is what makes this whole thing work. And Duncan, you are correct. There is some contrary motion going on. That's part of what makes it sound nice is that it is moving in the opposite direction from the melody at times. It's also just a cool riff. Um, I'll just play it on piano. It sounds like this. So it's this nice counter melody that's basically just one shape that cycles through the whole chord progression. So it starts with this shape, which then at the end uses this tasty chromatic passing tone to get down to the downbeat of the next chord, and then it cycles through the rest of the progression. So that's nice on its own, and then when you put the melody over it, you will notice that they are constantly moving in opposite directions. So when the melody goes up, the counter melody goes down, and when the counter melody jumps up, the melody goes down. It happens very quickly, but I'll play it kind of slowly so you can hear it, and that definitely teases your ear and causes you to just hear all this motion. You know, it, it feels much more active and exciting as a result of that. So yeah, just some classic, really well-done pop counter-melodic songwriting. Uh, so yeah, thanks, Duncan, for hipping me to the Lemon Twigs, a really neat band that I didn't know about. And you're correct. You're hearing the contrary motion correctly, which means you're probably just hearing more in music in general. Congratulations on your new headphones and uh, also on your new ears. That's very cool to hear. Angela writes, in Nothing But A Good Time by Poison, just after the second guitar solo and after Brett Michaels declaims, mmm, guitar, the drummer does a very visceral thing, which I think might be a snare drum followed by a bass thump four times. Am I right? What am I hearing? Well, let's listen. This is Nothing But A Good Time by Poison, just after the second guitar solo. And here comes the drum sound that Angela is asking about. It's 
Definitely an unusual sound. What I'm hearing there is actually a trick that I've talked about a few times recently, and one that I hope some of you are starting to develop an ear for if you didn't already have one, and that is the use of reversed sounds. So to me, this sounds like a reversed snare drum hit, or maybe just a reversed snare reverb. You take an isolated snare hit to get this sound, so an isolated snare drum will sound like this. So you take that and then you just reverse it, and you get this. After each reverse snare, the drummer, Ricky Rocket, is hitting what sounds like a big old rock tom and also his kick drum. So that adds a kind of a punch that is in contrast with the smooth build of that reverse snare, especially if they're just using their snare reverb, which I do think is what they're doing since I don't hear the reversed snare attack at the end of the sound. You'll hear it here, it kind of reverses into the snare attack and it gives this little pop at the end of the sound. It sounds smoother than that to me in the actual recording. So I think they're just reversing the reverb. So it's like the snares decay played backwards, building up to a tom and a kick drum. Sounds like this. So that's how they get that sound. The more you notice reversed effects, the more you'll start to hear them automatically because there's this consistent quality to reversed sounds that your ear will just sort of pick up more and more the more you get used to them. It's just a thing where the decay comes first and the attack comes second and you just your ear will just pick up on it the same as when you start to hear, you know, a, a reversed voice start talking. You can just tell that it's reversed by the nature of it, even if you can't understand. Um, so I, this is a cool trick. I don't know how they do it live. Maybe they just triggered the effect. That seems likely. Maybe they use a track. Or maybe, you know, another thing they might do is they put Ricky Rocket through a turnstile at the end of the concert, and then he goes back through the concert inverted, just so that he can play the snare hit at the right time. Michael writes, I am a high school chemistry and physics teacher in South Jersey, and it has been, well, a year. In order to jumpstart summer, I was given a book about building thinking classrooms that foster thinking and problem solving in students rather than just rote mimicking and practicing of topics covered in classes. One of the ideas posed in the book is to have students stand around large whiteboards and write out their thoughts rather than sitting at desks writing in notebooks. The idea is that since standing requires the use of core muscles and promotes blood flow, active engagement in a lesson by the student will be encouraged. The author uses the phrase, sitting is the new smoking, which, while arguably hyperbolic, is pretty good to use when making this point. My questions are these. Is the idea of sitting versus standing something you think about when practicing and playing music? Do you feel more engaged in the act of practicing when you focus on posture and form? I play guitar and most of what I've heard is about muscle groups which directly influence playing your arms, your hand, your wrist angle, etc., but not so much about other groups. Do you have any stories, anecdotal or otherwise, about musicians who practice while sitting and then perform live while standing? So this is definitely an interesting subject. It can go in a lot of different directions. I have a lot of thoughts on it. And the thing is, it'll never be the same for any two musicians. So I can speak to my own experience, but I can't give sort of, you know, really broad prescriptive advice. Um, just because different instruments require different things from us physically and different people just work differently and respond to things differently. So for my part, I practice most instruments while sitting, guitar, bass, sax, um, other woodwinds, obviously piano and drums. I practice those sitting since the piano that I have and the drum set that I have require me to play while sitting. I don't have, you know, I don't practice with a heightened keyboard stand. I don't have like a rockabilly stand-up drum kit. So I practice those while sitting as well. I do generally perform standing and it's always kind of an adjustment between the two, especially when I was first learning. And I have focused a lot on that switch, on being able to comfortably switch from sitting to standing on stage, because that's actually a really important switch to be able to make. 
So I found over the years that it's good to get up from time to time when I'm practicing and just spend some of my practice time standing up just to keep my body used to how that feels and to make sure that I'm able to make the switch. Because I'm going to have to go play guitar standing on stage, I should probably practice standing up as well and, you know, make sure that I'm able to do that. It's also important to make it so that my technique can be as unchanged as possible when going from sitting to standing. So a lot of guitarists, this is a very common thing with guitar players, they'll practice sitting down a lot and kind of balance a guitar on their thigh. Like if you're right-handed, you'll maybe have your right thigh. You could maybe even get one of those little foot pedestals. I use those sometimes uh, that classical guitars use. I find that those are very comfortable. Lifts your leg up and it rests the guitar on your thigh, on your right thigh, and um, then you can just play. And then if you have your straps super low, like really loose, like a lot of guitar players do, you'll stand up and the whole position of the guitar will shift. It'll drop by like six inches or a foot, and everything is totally different from how you were just practicing, and that's no good. Like, it's no good to get on stage when you're nervous and it's time to actually perform for people and have your guitar be a foot lower than it's been all the time that you've been practicing. Like, that's a terrible idea, but it happens to people all the time. And people just think, oh, it's fine, I'll adjust. But you don't need to adjust. You should set it up so that you're practicing the same way that you're going to perform. So when I practice now, I actually wear my strap pretty high so that when I'm sitting or if I'm standing, the guitar is just in the same place. It's on the strap. It's just sitting right there on my chest. My left hand is going to be right where it usually is, and I don't have to make any adjustments when I start playing live. Now, I'm kind of talking about electric guitar there. For acoustic, I don't always practice with a strap. I just sort of rest the guitar on my leg like you do with an acoustic guitar. And I've tried to set it so that my strap is the same height that when I stand up, the guitar is pretty much in the same place, but I probably should practice standing up a little bit more, especially when I'm getting ready to perform more on the acoustic guitar, because it's, like I said, you've got to practice how you perform. Same thing is true for saxophone. Um, it's I'm pretty much the same. My arms, my breath all work the same when I'm sitting as when I'm standing. I do find that, like, when I'm performing, when I'm soloing, I can get into a little bit more when I stand up just because I do find that it's helpful sometimes to just move, you know, not in a really frantic way, but just, you know, my legs will just kind of move me forward and backward at various times. And it feels good to use my whole body when I'm performing. Um, and that's a little bit more of a psychological thing, but I do like that. And I do practice standing up sometimes, sitting down other times. Um, I actually like practicing walking around sometimes too. That can be a good thing to do. So the important thing that I would say is you should practice occasionally standing and and occasionally sitting, especially if you're planning to perform standing up. You want there to be as little practical difference between the two as possible. And also it's just good to move around. You don't want to get locked in one position. If I stay in one position for too long, that can kind of lead to tension and tightness, other bad habits. It's definitely something I struggle with on drums since you're kind of locked into one position on a drum set. And it's very easy to get locked into like weird posture and other bad ergonomic things on the drum set because of that. So it's just good to shake things up as you go. Maybe set a timer, stand for a while, sit for a while until you get that kind of into your head and you can do it automatically. I like pacing around. Like I said, moving around can be good. And like your teaching method says, Jeffrey, engaging the rest of my body from time to time, it's kind of just good for my process. Like it feels like it can shake me out of a rut. It sort of shakes me up a little bit and can get me re-energized and to keep kind of, you know, finding new angles on something that I'm working on. So that's my advice on sitting versus standing. Good luck with the summer. And I hope that next year is a little bit less exciting than this past year was. 
Drew writes, So I was giving the Star Wars original soundtracks a listen as I'm inclined to do from time to time. I noticed in the Confrontation with Dooku finale piece from Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, that the Game of Thrones theme can be heard oh so briefly, starting at about 2 minutes and 55 seconds. Do you have any thoughts on this? Like, do you think that this is an homage by Game of Thrones composer Ramin Djawadi to John Williams, someone who I'm sure has influenced him, or maybe just a happy coincidence? Well, let's listen. This is, uh, this is the segment in question from... Confrontation with Dooku finale from John Williams' score for Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. So it's a bit of a blink and you missed it kind of a thing or whatever the equivalent of a blink with your ears is, an ear blink. But Drew, you are not imagining things. Uh, That little motif that plays for a couple of seconds there is the same four-note motif that Ramin Djawadi would use eight years later in 2011 for his Game of Thrones theme. Definitely the same four-note motif as John Williams briefly used in 2002. Now, as for whether I think this was a purposeful homage, I can't speak for Jawadi, so anything is possible, so I'll say that up front, but I gotta say it seems kind of doubtful to me for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's such a tiny part of the overall piece, it's just this extremely quick little almost transitional motif that it just seems strange that a composer like Jawadi would hear that and be like, I know, I'm gonna build a whole piece out of that, like that's just... That doesn't really seem like that would happen. But moreover, it's just such a simple little motif. I mean, it's four notes. It's more of a building block than an actual structure, if that makes sense. Like, Williams's Imperial March, that's a structure. That's a real theme. That Imperial March rules, and it is super distinct. That's a strong melody that he created. You can sink your teeth into it. A shape, this is more of a shape, like five, one, two, three, five. Like, that's just kind of a shape. And using it in that rhythm, the rhythm makes it a little bit closer, but it's still the kind of thing that you just kind of write and then you use it to build something bigger, which is what Juwadi does on the Game of Thrones theme. So while I can't say for sure, my guess would be that it's kind of just a coincidence. It's just the kind of a motif that bounces around. A lot of people hear shapes like that. It's a shape that he used and then built this whole big theme out of it. Um, But it's still good ears and it's a good catch that you heard that. I mean, it's a really brief moment in that piece of music. And you know, I got to leave open the possibility that maybe he did hear it and think, I'm going to build a whole theme out of that. You never know. Stuff happens and I I have not asked him. To anyone out there who wants a more in-depth analysis of Ramin Djawadi's music, check out last year's episode on HBO themes. And as for John Williams, don't worry, we'll get to him. Tom writes, I had a question for the pod if you ever want to answer it. How do you feel about horn sections in ska and ska punk bands? I feel like as I've grown older and my music taste has diversified, a lot of other people have tended to look down on ska. But when I'm feeling down, nothing lifts my mood like some horn-heavy ska. It's just not possible to feel sad while listening to something so bright and upbeat. What's with the snobbery? And as a horn player, what's your view? Well, I guess I should say I'm not really a Sky expert. I've never really played any Sky. I didn't listen to a lot of Sky back in its heyday, or at least the third wave Sky, which is the kind of punk Sky that I think Tom is asking about that was popular when I was in high school in the 90s. If you really want to get into Sky and go way back to its roots, you know, you can get some really cool stuff, like the Jamaican music from the 70s, which had a lot of crossover with reggae, like original Sky. That's very different, and that's kind of more like reggae music, but I think what Tom is asking about is more like, you know, Goldfinger, Less Than Jake, Real Big Fish, those kinds of bands. 
But, you know, I agree. Those bands are really fun. I mean, they always seem like they're having a great time. There's a lot of comedy and good humor in that music. You know, Real Big Fish just always struck me as a very funny band. So, yeah, I think the music is just generally pretty happening. It's fun. The horn parts are fun, too. I remember when I was like 17, I was a pretty cloistered jazz kid. I was very into jazz, but I did play saxophone. And I remember at an all-school meeting in my high school, there was this presentation like about bullying or something. And at, during one segment, they played this video that was accompanied by the impression that I get by the Mighty Mighty Boss tones and i heard that song which is a super catchy song it was on like the radio at the time too and i was like whoa i didn't know horns could even play this kind of a role in this kind of a band and it was really cool it's a simple horn part they're just playing in unison but it's really hot in the mix it's right in your face it really hits you and it's a nice sound it it definitely jumped out at me and as a saxophone player i found it really exciting So as for whatever perceived bias or snobbishness might exist against ska, honestly, I just I think it's too easy to spend time on what people think and to get hung up on that or at least to give it too much of our attention. Because like, who are we even talking about, right? Anytime I think, oh, I know some people hate this thing. And then I think, do they? Like, who am I actually talking about? Are these just imagined people? Is this the result of, you know, me reading a negative comment somewhere on YouTube or something and extrapolating from that, that there's some group of people who feel the same way when that might have been written by like an artificial intelligence that was just designed to generate engagement? And is it really worth my time to spend that time imagining why people I don't know who likely don't exist, and if they do exist, can't actually be meaningfully grouped together, to spend time imagining why those possibly imaginary people might not like music that I do like. So I don't really have an answer for that. Whenever I see someone out there talking about ska, I pretty much see people saying what you say, that they love ska. They think it's fun. They think it's exciting music. It makes them nostalgic for a certain time in their life. They love going to ska shows. They wish they could go to another ska show. I'm sure there are people out there who don't like ska, just like there are people who don't like most kinds of music, but I don't spend too much time theorizing about why they might not like that kind of music, especially not when it's the kind of music that I do like. So whatever. People can dislike ska for whatever reason they want. I like ska because it's exciting and positive music and because more bands should put the horns more forward in the mix. Steve writes, I wonder what your take is on how I perceive the Eagles Hotel California. Unlike you, I find it hard to put these concepts into words, but to me, the song gives me a mesmerizing sense of elliptical motion. To attempt an analogy, it's something like the effect of a looping yo-yo. I'm wondering if you also get that sense, and if so, what is going on? Well, Steve, I totally know what you're talking about. That song gives me that sense, too, and that's for a reason to do with the chord progression. So let's just listen to a little bit of the Eagles Hotel California. Alright, so it comes down to this chord progression, which is just going from 1 to 5 to 1 to 5, kind of moving downward, down the neck of the guitar. This plays very well on guitar, but because of this chord progression, it sounds like it just never quite resolves. Yeah, 
So when I say it's going one to five to one to five, this is kind of in G major. It's like B minor versus G major chorus. And it moves in fifths in a way that, like I said, works really well on guitar. If you start on B minor, which is the first chord, then you go to F sharp major, which is the five of B minor. And then it just goes down a step to A major. And then it goes to E major, which is the five of the E major. And then it goes down a step again to G major. And then it goes to D, which is the five of G. And then it goes down a step to E minor. And then it goes up a step to F sharp to get back to that B minor. So you're kind of like going one, five, and then just going down a whole step and going one, five, and then going down a whole step and going one, five. And in theory, you could just kind of keep that going forever and just go in a circle. So it has this kind of cyclical feeling because it's never quite resolving and it could just keep going forever. And that's what gives it this kind of um, ponderous trapped feeling, which I think fits with the lyrics of the song. I mean, it's actually like, it's very well done. It really captures that uncertainty, that vague sense of spoiled promise and decay that the song generally conveys from start to finish. And that's also why it's such a big release when it finally lands on that G for the chorus and it totally just stays put for a little while on the G chord and you're like, ah, finally, like, we've arrived somewhere, we can just catch our breath and it's not just this endless spiral. Welcome to the So that's the reason that it feels that way to you, Steve, because that's really what's going on. It's moving in this replicating pattern of a fifth, then a second, then a fifth, then a second. It keeps repeating in this way that tells your ear, hey, this could keep repeating forever. I'm trapped. Tyler writes in a question that came in a little while back, it's almost Halloween again, which means I'm obsessed with Oingo Boingo's Dead Man's Party again. I'm trying to learn how to play the song this year, and right off the bat I realized that I'm not sure what percussion is playing at the very start of the song. It's three quick hits after the intro guitar before the singing comes in. Do you have any idea what it is? It sounds like some kind of a rim shot or other metallic sound. Well, let's listen. This is the beginning of Oingo Boingo's wonderful tune, Dead Man's Party. Well, I kind of want to keep listening to the song, but we already heard the three notes in question. That's Johnny Vatos, a.k.a. Johnny Hernandez, drummer for Oingo Boingo, playing what I thought was a cowbell, but something that a few listeners have written in to point out is actually probably what's called a roto-tom. Roto-tom is a type of tom drum that can be easily retuned. You rotate it to retune it. That's where the name roto-tom comes from. It has a drier and less resonant sound than a standard tom. You'll hear it a lot on prog recordings. And while I thought this was a particularly heavy-sounding cowbell, it does sound like a roto-tom. Listeners, you were correct. It's just a pretty high-pitched one. There's lots of good examples of roto-toms out there. Lots of prog records feature them, like I said. One famous one is actually Nick Mason's drum solo at the start of Time from Pink Floyd's iconic album, The Dark Side of the Moon. Hernandez played percussion and drums, and there's a lot of cool percussion and drums on this. Some of the drums sound sampled to me, but a lot of them sound like real drums. But I hear that he's kind of got go-go bells going over on the left, or I guess those are called a-go-go bells. The snare drum sound in this recording sounds very synth snare to me, like I think it's going for a purposefully electronic drum kit sound. So yeah, it's kind of a hybrid sound overall. (laughs) 
So anyway, lots of cool percussion going on on this track, but that's what that beginning sound is. That is a rototom, which I mistakenly heard as a cowbell, but actually is a rototom. And now, surprise, surprise, I kind of want to get some rototoms. This is such a hip tune and such a hip record. I actually transcribed and arranged this song, Dead Man's Party, for a band that I was in back in San Francisco so that we could cover it. And in the process of learning the song, man, the guitar parts are so freaking cool. There's all this like hemiola over the bar line stuff going on. A really cool record by a band fronted by one of my favorite musicians, Danny Elfman. I did already talk about his music when I talked about The Nightmare Before Christmas back in year one, but I don't know. I might have to talk about Oingo Boingo at some point too because they were a really good band and still kind of unappreciated or at least underappreciated. I know a lot of people know they're good, but really go listen to Dead Man's Party. It's a super good record. Our last question comes from Jeffrey. This is an interesting one. Jeffrey wrote, Your Oliver Nelson episode got me thinking about the difference between jazz solos and rock solos. The best jazz solos are clearly works of art, carefully analyzed by listeners and meticulously studied by other musicians. Yet my impression is that no self-respecting jazz musician would reproduce their own studio version solo when playing the same tune live, since the whole essence of jazz is spontaneous improvisation. Rock solos, it seems to me, work quite differently. I'm talking mostly about guitar solos here. The most iconic rock solos, Jimmy Page on Stairway to Heaven, David Gilmore on Comfortably Numb, Slash on Sweet Child of Mine. They're brilliantly constructed. They're as brilliantly constructed as any jazz improvisation. They inspire the same kind of critical assessment and worshipful study. But when a rock band plays live, the guitarist often recreates their studio version solo note for note, effect for effect, and the crowd goes wild. Indeed, they're often disappointed if the guitarist actually improvises a solo instead. Moreover, whenever cover bands play a famous rock song, they're also expected to reproduce the original solo, and they're seen as better at their jobs if they do so. I'm sure there are some exceptions to this rule. For instance, Page's solos on live versions of Stairway appear to vary wildly, but it still seems to be a pretty standard principle on live pop rock performance. So why do you think this difference exists? Why do iconic jazz solos exist only in their recorded versions, whereas famous rock solos get replayed again and again in live performance? So this is a great question, and yeah, there are obviously exceptions on both sides of this, particularly in rock, where some soloists truly do improvise, but I do think it's kind of a safe generalization to make. Like, I get what Jeffrey is asking about, the way that jazz solos tend to be unique, while rock solos are often a little bit more etched in stone. So this moves across a couple of different vectors. There are like lots of rock music where it's just generally more wholly composed, and it's a little less interested in spontaneity. And in that case, the solo is just treated more like an instrumental solo in an orchestral piece. It's a written part of the music like any other part of the music, and it may have been written in the studio with some improvisation involved in the writing, but a lot of classical music worked that way too. Once it's been written, it's played the same way every time. So solo doesn't necessarily mean mean improvised. You know, that was really something that only became commonplace because in jazz, soloing was largely improvised. And then we started to just think, oh, when someone's soloing, they're improvising. But rock came after jazz. Rock is derived from jazz and blues. So the question still stands, why are rock guitar solos less improvised? So the answer actually comes down to not just the soloist, but the rest of the ensemble. If you focus on just a Charlie Parker solo or a Slash solo, like that Slash solo on November Rain that I just played an excerpt from, 
On its own, they are kind of similar. There's a lone instrument that takes center stage and it commands the song with a series of melodies. But if you look at what's going on in the ensemble, it's a totally different story, and that's where the difference comes in. The intention of a jazz ensemble is to be collaborative. A jazz band is meant to be interacting, so the function of a jazz solo is to play a part, a smaller part, in a larger group interaction. When it's your turn to solo on a jazz tune, you may be the one driving the conversation, like you're playing and everyone is kind of following you, but it's still a conversation that you're having having with the rest of the band. You're improvising with the pianist, the drummer, the bassist. They're also improvising, and you're all improvising together. And great jazz bands, as I've talked about on past jazz episodes, really build something together. You're improvising as a group in a jazz band. The music is built around that group improvisation. That's the intention of a jazz group. You set out with that intention at the beginning. You're going to improvise together according to these certain parameters. You're going to generate music from the unexpected things that come from that group improvisation as multiple people play the music together in conversation conversation with one another. So when the Bill Evans Trio plays Santa Claus is Coming to Town, Bill is playing the melody, he's kind of driving the conversation, but Scott LaFaro and Paul Motion are both equal participants, and that's because that's what they set out to do. It's group improvisation. You mentioned that no self-respecting jazz player would be caught dead repeating their past solos, and that's true because it'd just be gauche. Like, it'd be like showing up to a dinner party, and rather than having a conversation, just reading pre-written announcements off of your phone the whole time. Everybody else showed up to have a conversation, you're just doing a monologue, so you would kind of seem like a jerk. So if it all comes down to intention and the intention of the ensemble, a slash guitar solo, specifically one like the one that he plays on November Rain, that's just a completely different proposition. That's a guitarist standing up in front of a band and wailing for 16 bars. The intent isn't really for it to be a conversation between him and the rest of the band. It's not expected that McKagan and Adler are going to be like listening and sympathetically reacting to what he's playing. The point is just it's like this guitar expression that plays for 16 bars or 32 bars or however long that solo is for some set period of time. And the audience knows that too, so there's an element of audience expectation in there as well. It's all just the agreed upon context for the song. So when you get to the kind of exceptions that you mentioned, Jeffrey, when you're talking about, you know, bands, rock bands that kind of get more improvisational, yeah, there's a lot of rock that has more in common with jazz and moves closer to jazz in that way. Like jam bands, The Grateful Dead, Fish, they don't play the same solos all the time. Jimi Hendrix definitely never repeated a solo. And that's because there are a lot of rock musicians who are closer to jazz, and that's just down to their intention, the ensemble's intention. They want to play music where they're all interacting, not just where they're expressing the energy of something that they've already built. Which means, and this is important, this is not a genre question about a difference between rock and jazz, it's just about ensemble intention. And then what the audience understands about that intention, so what they're expecting going in.
And that'll do it for this latest mailbag episode. Thanks to everyone who wrote in. And if you've got a question you think would be good for a future episode of the show, or if you just have some thoughts, music recommendations, or anything else, shoot me a note at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. Thanks as always to all of my patrons. It's an increasingly tough thing to make a living as an independent musician in this day and age. Your support on Patreon makes that possible. But I also know, like... Times have been tough for a lot of people. I've seen a lot of people having to leave the Patreon or cut back in the past couple of months. I just want to say that's also totally fine. Like, if you've ever been a patron of this show, if you're listening, and at any point you've been a patron of the show, even if you had to stop for whatever reason, you've still helped make Strong Songs possible. You've made all of this happen. And even if you've never been a patron and never want to be, you can still support the show in so many ways. Tell people about the show or just listen. Send in a Q&A question. Whatever. I make this show so the people will listen to it, and it's very meaningful to me that you're all out there listening i've got some pretty cool stuff in the works for the rest of the year i'm lining up some exciting interviews that'll run in july when i take a much needed vacation as well as some cool off format stuff one of which will actually run in two weeks at the end of june this episode's outro soloist is the one and only portland trombonist kyle molitor so stick around for kyle and i'll be back in two weeks with more strong songs 